section forty five of a compendious history of english literature and of the english language volume one this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox dot org a compendious history of english literature and of the english language volume one by george lilly craik chapter four part twenty one spencer's extraordinary faculty of vision seeing and picture drawing can fail to strike none of his readers but he will not be adequately appreciated or enjoyed by those who regard verse either as a non-essential or as a very subordinate element of poetry such minds however must miss half the charm of all poetry not only all that is purely sensuous in poetry must escape them but likewise all the pleasurable excitement that lies in the harmonious accordance of the musical expression with the informing idea or feeling and in the additional force or brilliancy that in such interunion is communicated by the one to the other all beauty is dependent upon form other things may often enter into the beautiful but this is the one thing that can never be dispensed with all other ingredients as they must be contained by so must be controlled by this and the only thing that standing alone may constitute the beautiful is form or outline accordingly whatever addresses itself to or is suited to gratify the imagination takes this character it falls into more or less of regularity and measure mere passion is of all things the most unmeasured and irregular naturally the most opposed of all things to form but in that state it is also wholly unfitted for the purposes of art before it can become imaginative in any artistic sense it must have put off its original merely volcanic character and worn itself into something of measure and music thus all impassioned composition is essentially melodious in a higher or lower degree measured language is the appropriate and natural expression of passion or deep feeling operating artistically in writing or speech the highest and most perfect kind of measured language is verse and passion expressing itself in verse is what is properly called poetry take away the verse and in most cases you take away half the poetry sometimes much more the verse in truth is only one of several things by the aid of which the passion seeks to give itself effective expression or by which the thought is endowed with additional animation or beauty nay it is only one ingredient of the musical expression of the thought or passion if the verse may be dispensed with so likewise upon the same principle may every decoration of the sentiment or statement everything else that would do more than convey the bare fact let the experiment be tried and see how it will answer take a single instance immediately through the obscurity a great number of flags were seen to be raised all richly coloured out of these words no doubt the reader or hearer might after some meditation extract the conception of a very imposing scene but although they intimate with sufficient exactness and distinctness the same literal fact they are nevertheless the deadest prose compared with milton's glorious words all in a moment through the gloom 
were seen ten thousand banners rise into the air with orient colours waving and so it would happen in every other case in which true poetry was divested of its musical expression a part and it might be the greater part of its life beauty and effect would always be lost and it would in truth cease to be what is distinctly called poetry or song of which verse is as much one of the necessary constituents as passion or imagination itself those who dispute this will never be able to prove more than that their own enjoyment of the sensuous part of poetry which is really that in which its peculiar character resides is limited or feeble which it may very well be in minds otherwise highly gifted and even endowed with considerable imaginative power the feeling of the merely beautiful however or of beauty unimpregnated by something of a moral spirit or meaning is not likely in such minds to be very deep or strong high art therefore is not their proper region in any of its departments in poetry they will probably not very greatly admire or enjoy either spencer or milton and perhaps would prefer paradise lost in the prose version which osborne the bookseller in the last century got a gentleman of oxford to execute for the use of readers to whom the sense was rather obscured by the verse passing over several of the great passages towards the commencement of the poem such as the description of queen lucifera and her six counsellors in the fourth canto of the first book that of the visit of the witch duessa to hell in the fifth and that of the cave of despair in the ninth which are probably more familiarly known to the generality of readers we will give as our first specimen of the fairy queen the escape of the enchanter archimage from braggadocio and his man trompart and the introduction and description of belphoebe in the third canto of book second he stayed not for more bidding but away was sudden vanished out of his sight the northern wind his wings did broad display at his command and reared him up light from off the earth to take his airy flight they looked about but nowhere could espy tracked of his foot then dead through great affright they both nigh were and each bade other fly both fled at once nor ever back returned i till that they come unto a forest green in which they shrowed themselves from causeless fear yet fear them follow still where so they been each trembling leaf and whistling wind they hear as ghastly bug does greatly them afear yet both do strive their fearfulness to feign at last they heard a horn that shrilled clear throughout the wood that echoed again and made the forest ring as it would writhe in twain eft through the thick they heard one rudely rush with noise whereof he from his lofty steed down fell to ground and crept into a bush to hide his coward head from dying dread but trompart stoutly stayed to taken heed of what might hap eft soon there stepped forth a goodly lady clad in hunter's weed that seemed to be a woman of great worth and by her stately portents 
born of heavenly birth her face so fair as flesh it seemed not but heavenly portrait of bright angels hue clear as the sky withouten blame or blot through goodly mixture of complexions due and in her cheeks the vermeil red did show like roses in a bed of lilies shed the which ambrosial odours from them threw and gazers sense with double pleasure fed able to heal the sick and to revive the dead in her fair eyes two living lamps did flame kindled above at the heavenly maker's light and darted fiery beams out of the same so passing persant and so wondrous bright that quite bereaved the rash beholder's sight in them the blinded god his lustful fire to kindle oft essayed but had no might for with dread majesty and awful ire she broke his wanton darts and quenched base desire her ivory forehead full of bounty braid like a broad table did itself dispread for love his lofty triumphs to engrave and write the battles of his great godhead all good and honour might therein be read for there their dwelling was and when she spake sweet words like dropping honey she did shed and twixt the pearls and rubens softly break a silver sound that heavenly music seemed to make upon her eyelids many graces sat under the shadow of her even brows working bell guards an amorous retreat and every one her with a grace endows and every one with meekness to her bows so glorious mirror of celestial grace and sovereign monument of mortal vows how shall frail pen describe her heavenly face for fear through want of skill her beauty to disgrace so fair and thousand thousand times more fair she seemed when she presented was to sight and was he clad for heat of scorching air all in a silken camas lily white perfly upon with many a folded plight which all above besprinkled was throughout with golden aigulets that glistened bright like twinkling stars and all the skirt about was hemmed with golden fringe below her ham her weed did somewhat train and her straight legs most bravely were embailed in gilded buskins of costly cord wain all barred with golden bands which were entailed with curious antics and full fair amailed before they fastened were under her knee in a rich jewel and therein entrailed the ends of all the knots that none might see how they within their foldings close in rapid be like two fair marble pillars they were seen which do the temple of the gods support whom all the people deck with girlons green and honour in their festival resort those same with stately grace and princely port she taught to tread when she herself would grace but with the witty nymphs when she did sport or when the flying libbard she did chase she could them nimbly move and after fly apace and in her hand a sharp boar spear she held and at her back a bow and quiver gay stuffed with steel-headed darts wherewith she quelled the savage beasts in her victorious play knit with a golden baldric 
which forlay athwart her snowy breast and did divide her dainty paps which like young fruit in may now little gan to swell and being tied through her thin weed their places only signified her yellow locks crisped like golden wire about her shoulders were in loosely shed and when the wind amongst them did inspire they waved like a pennon wide dispread and low behind her back were scattered and whether art it were or heedless hap as through the flowering forest rash she fled in her rude hairs sweet flowers themselves did lap and flourishing fresh leaves and blossoms did enwrap such as diana by the sandy shore of swift eurotus or on cynthus green where all the nymphs have her unawares forlore wandereth alone with bow and arrows keen to seek her game or as that famous queen of amazons whom pyrrhus did destroy the day that first of priam she was seen did show herself in great triumphant joy to succour the weak state of sad afflicted troy our next extract shall be part of the mask of cupid displayed to britomart the fair and bold the representative of chastity in the house of the enchanter bizurain from the twelfth canto of the third book being the conclusion of the first published portion of the poem all suddenly a stormy whirlwind blew throughout the house that clap at every door with which that iron wicket open flew as it with mighty levers had been tore and forth issued as on the ready floor of some they ater a grave personage that in his hand a branch of laurel bore with comely haver and countenance sage he clad in costly garments fit for tragic stage proceeding to the midst he still did stand as if in mind he somewhat had to say and to the vulgar beckoning with his hand in sign of silence as to hear a play by lively actions he gan bewray some argument of matter passioned which done he back retired soft away and passing by his name discovered ease on his robe in golden letters ciphered the noble maid still standing all this viewed and marvelled at his strange intendiment with that a joyous fellowship issued of minstrels making goodly merriment with wanton bards and rhymers impudent all which together sung full cheerfully a lay of love's delight with sweet consent after whom marched a jolly company in manner of a mask enranged orderly the whiles a most delicious harmony in full strange notes was sweetly heard to sound that the rare sweetness of the melody the feeble senses wholly did confound and the frail soul in deep delight nigh drowned and when it ceased shrill trumpets loud did bray that their report did far away rebound and when they ceased it gan again to play the whiles the maskers marched forth in trim array the first was fancy like a lovely boy of rare aspect and beauty without peer matchable either to that imp of troy whom jove did love and chose his cup to bear or that same dainty lad which was so dear to great alcides that when as he died he wailed woman-like with many a tear and every wood and every valley wide he filled with hylas name the nymphs eke hylas cried his garment neither was of silk nor say but painted plumes in goodly order dight 
like as the sunburnt indians do array their tawny bodies in their proudest plight as those same plumes so seemed he vain and light that by his gait might easily appear for still he fared as dancing in delight and in his hand a windy fan did bear that in the idle air he moved still here and there and him beside marched amorous desire who seemed of riper years than the other swain yet was that other swain this elder's sire and gave him being common to them twain his garment was disguised very vain and his embroidered bonnet sat awry twixt both his hands few sparks he closed strain which still he blew and kindled busily that soon they life conceived and forth in flames did flee next after him went doubt who was he clad in a discoloured coat of strange disguise that at his back a broad capuccio had and sleeves dependent albanese wise he looked askew with his mistrustful eyes and nicely trod as thorns lay in his way or that the floor to shrink he did advise and on a broken reed he still did stay his feeble steps which shrunk when hard thereon he lay with him went danger clothed in ragged weed made of bearskin that him more dreadful made yet his own face was dreadful nor did need strange horror to deform his grisly shade a net in the one hand and a rusty blade in the other was this mischief that mishap with the one his foes he threatened to invade with the other he his friends meant to enwrap for whom he could not kill he practised to entrap next him was fear all armed from top to toe yet thought himself not safe enough thereby but feared each shadow moving to or fro and his own arms when glittering he did spy or clashing hurt he fast away did fly as ashes pale of hue and winged healed and evermore on danger fixed his eye gainst whom he always bent a brazen shield which his right hand unarmed fearfully did wield with him when hope and rank a handsome maid of cheerful look and lovely to behold in silk and samite she was light arrayed and her fair locks were woven up in gold she always smiled and in her hand did hold and holy water sprinkle dipped in dew with which she sprinkled favours manifold on whom she list and did great liking shew great liking unto many but true love to few and after them dissemblance and suspect marched in one rank yet an unequal pair for she was gentle and of mild aspect courteous to all and seeming debonair goodly adorned and exceeding fair yet was that all but painted and purloined and her bright brows were decked with borrowed hair her deeds were forged and her words false coined and always in her hand two clues of silk she twined but he was foul ill-favoured and grim under his eyebrows looking still askance and ever as dissemblance laughed on him he lowered on her with dangerous eye-glance showing his nature in his countenance his rolling eyes did never rest in place but walked each where for fear of hid mischance holding a lattice still before his face through which he still did peep as forward he did pace next him went grief and fury matched e fear grief all in sable sorrowfully clad down hanging his dull head with heavy cheer yet inly being more than seeming sad a pair of pincers in his hand he had with which he pinched many to the heart that from thenceforth a wretched life they lad in wilful languor and consuming smart dying each day with inward wounds of dolor's dart but fury was full ill apparelled 
in rags that naked nigh she did appear with ghastly looks and dreadful dreary head for from her back her garments she did tear and from her head oft rent her snarled hair in her right hand a firebrand she did toss about her head still roaming here and there as a dismayed deer in chase embossed forgetful of his safety hath his right way lost after them went displeasure and pleasance he looking lumpish and full sullen sad and hanging down his heavy countenance she cheerful fresh and full of joyance glad as if no sorrow she nor felt nor drad that evil matched pair they seemed to be an angry wasp the one in a vile had the other in hers an honey lady be thus marched these six couples forth in fair degree after all these there marched a most fair dame led of two grisly villains the one despite the other clepid cruelty by name she doleful lady like a dreary sprite called by strong charms out of eternal night had death's own image figured in her face full of sad signs fearful to living sight yet in that horror showed a seemly grace and with her feeble feet did move a comely pace her breast all naked as net ivory without adorn of gold or silver bright wherewith the craftsman wants it beautify of her due honour was despoiled quite and a wide wound therein a rueful sight entrenched deep with knife accursed keen yet freshly bleeding forth her fainting sprite the work of cruel hand was to be seen that dyed in sanguine red her skin all snowy clean at that wide orifice her trembling heart was drawn forth and in silver basin laid quite through transfixed with a deadly dart and in her blood yet steaming fresh embayed and those two villains which her steps upstayed when her weak feet could scarcely her sustain and fading vital powers gan to fade her forward still with torture did constrain and evermore increased her consuming pain next after her the winged god himself came riding on a lion ravenous taught to obey the menage of that elf that man and beast with power imperious subdueth to his kingdom tyrannous his blindfold eyes he bade a while unbind that his proud spoil of that same dolorous fair dame he might behold in perfect kind which seen he much rejoiced in his cruel mind of which full proud himself uprearing high he looked round about with stern disdain and did survey his goodly company and marshalled the evil ordered train with that the darts which his right hand did strain full dreadfully he shook that all did quake and clapped on high his coloured wing as twain that all his many it afraid did make though blinding him again his way he forth did take behind him was reproach repentance shame reproach the first shame next repent behind repentance feeble sorrowful and lame reproach despiteful careless and unkind shame most ill-favoured bestial and blind shame lowered repentance sighed reproach did scold reproach sharp stings repentance whips entwined shame burning brand irons in her hand did hold all three to each unlike yet all made in one mould and after them a rude confused rout of persons flocked whose names is hard to read amongst them was stern strife and anger stout unquiet care and fond unthrifty head 
lewd loss of time and sorrow seeming dead inconstant change and false disloyalty consuming riotous and guilty dread of heavenly vengeance faint infirmity foul poverty and lastly death with infamy there were full many mo like maladies whose names and natures i note ridden well so many mo as there be fantasies in wavering women's wit that none can tell or pains in love or punishments in hell all which disguised marched in masking wise about the chamber by the damozel and then returned having marched thrice into the inner room from whence they first did rise a volume of poetry such as this spenser might fitly and with some pride in the worth of the offering as well as in all humility dedicate present to the most high mighty and magnificent empress elizabeth to live with the eternity of her fame the latter books of the fairy queen have less continuity of splendour than the three first but besides innumerable single stanzas and short passages of exquisite beauty they contain not a few pictures on a more extended canvas which must be reckoned among the most remarkable in the work among others may be mentioned those of the temple of venus in the tenth and of the gathering of the rivers at the marriage of the thames and the medway in the eleventh canto of the fourth book those of the night spent by sir caledon among the shepherds in the ninth and of the dance of the graces in the tenth canto of book fifth and that of the procession of the seasons in the second of the two cantos of mutability but passing over these more brilliant displays of an inventive and florid fancy we will select as our sample of this portion of the poem one of its more soberly coloured passages in which nevertheless there may perhaps be thought to be as much of the vision and the faculty divine though otherwise exercised as in any of those we have yet quoted the following from the second canto of the fifth book might seem to be a satire written in our own day on the folly and madness of seventy years ago and it is difficult to believe that it was published two centuries before the events which it so strikingly prefigures there they beheld a mighty giant stand upon a rock and holding forth on high an huge great pair of balance in his hand with which he boasted in his sir quadri that all the world he would weigh equally if aught he had the same to counterpoise for want whereof he weighed vanity and filled his balance full of idle toys yet was admired much of fools women and boys he said that he would all the earth uptake and all the sea divided each from either so would he of the fire one balance make and one of the air without or wind or weather then would he balance heaven and hell together and all that did within them all contain of all whose weight he would not miss a feather and look what surplus did of each remain he would to his own part restore the same again for why he said they all unequal were and had encroached upon others share like as the sea which plain he showed there had worn the earth so did the fire the air so all the rest did others parts impair and so were realms and nations run awry all which he undertook for to repair in sort as they were formed anciently and all things would reduce unto equality therefore the vulgar did about him flock and cluster thick into his leasing's vein like foolish flies about an honey crock in hope by him great benefit to gain and uncontrolled freedom to obtain all which when artegall did see and hear how he misled the simple people's train in disdainful wise he drew unto him near and thus unto him spake without regard or fear 
thou that presumest to weigh the world anew and all things to an equal to restore instead of right meseems great wrong dost show and far above thy forces pitch to soar for ere thou limit what is less or more in everything thou oughtest first to know what was the poise of every part of yore and look then how much it doth overflow or fail thereof so much is more than just i trow for at the first they all created were in goodly measure by their maker's might and weighed out in balances so near that not a dram was missing of their right the earth was in the middle centre pight in which it doth immovable abide hemmed in with waters like a wall in sight and they with air that not a drop can slide all which the heavens contain and in their courses guide such heavenly justice doth among them reign that every one do know their certain bound in which they do these many years remain and amongst them all no change hath yet been found but if thou now shouldst weigh them new in pound we are not sure they would so long remain all change is perilous and all chance unsound therefore leave off to weigh them all again till we may be assured they shall their course retain thou foolish elf said then the giant wroth seest not how badly all things present be and each estate quite out of order goth the sea itself dost thou not plainly see encroach upon the land there under thee and the earth itself how daily it's increased by all that dying to it turned be were it not good that wrong were then surceased and from the most that some were given to the least therefore i will throw down these mountains high and make them level with the lowly plain these towering rocks which reach into the sky i will thrust down into the deepest main and as they were them equalize again tyrants that make men subject to their law i will suppress that they no more may reign and lordings curb that commons over awe and all the wealth of rich men to the poor will draw of things unseen how canst thou deem aright then answered the righteous artegal sith thou misdeemest so much of things in sight what though the sea with waves continue all do eat the earth it is no more at all nor is the earth the lesser loseth aught for whatsoever from one place doth fall is with the tide unto another brought for there is nothing lost that may be found if sought likewise the earth is not augmented more by all that dying unto it do fade for of the earth they form it were of yore however gay their blossom or their blade do flourish now they into dust shall fade what wrong then is it if that when they die they turn to that whereof they first were made all in the power of their great maker lie all creatures must obey the voice of the most high they live they die like as he doth ordain nor ever any asketh reason why the hills do not the lowly dales disdain the dales do not the lofty hills envy he maketh kings to sit in sovereignty he maketh subjects to their power obey he pulleth down he setteth up on high he gives to this from that he takes away for all we have is his what he list do he may whatever thing is done by him is done nor any may his mighty will withstand nor any may his sovereign power shun nor loose that he hath bound with steadfast band in vain therefore dost thou now take in hand to call to count or weigh his works anew whose counsel's depth thou canst not understand sith of things subject to thy daily view thou dost not know the causes nor their courses do for take thy balance if thou be so wise and weigh the wind that under heaven doth blow or weigh the light that in the east doth rise or weigh the thought that from man's mind doth flow 
but if the weight of these thou canst not show weigh but one word which from thy lips doth fall for how canst thou those greater secrets know that dost not know the least thing of them all ill can he rule the great that cannot reach the small therewith the giant much abashed said that he of little things made reckoning light yet the least word that ever could be laid within his balance he could weigh aright which is said he more heavy than in weight the right or wrong the false or else the true he answered that he would try it straight so he the words into his balance threw but straight the winged words out of his balance flew wroth wexed he then and said that words were light nor could within his balance well abide but he could justly weigh the wrong or right well then said artegall let it be tried first in one balance set the true aside he did so first and then the false he laid in the other scale but still it down did slide and by no mean could in the weight be stayed for by no means the false will with the truth be weighed now take the right likewise said artegale and counterpoise the same with so much wrong so first the right he put into one scale and then the giant strove with puissance strong to fill the other scale with so much wrong but all the wrongs that he therein could lay might it not poise yet did he labour long and swat and choked and proved every way yet all the wrongs could not a little right down way which when he saw he greatly grew in rage and almost would his balances have broken but artegall him fairly gan assuage and said be not upon thy balance broken for they do naught but right or wrong betoken but in the mind the doom of right must be and so likewise of words the which be spoken the ear must be the balance to decree and judge whether with truth or falsehood they agree but set the truth and set the right aside for they with wrong or falsehood will not fare and put two wrongs together to be tried or else two falses of each equal share and then together do them both compare for truth is one and right is ever one so did he and then plain it did appear whether of them the greater were atone but right sat in the middest of the beam alone but he the right from thence did thrust away for it was not the right which he did seek but rather strove extremities to weigh the one to diminish the other for to eke for of the mean he greatly did misleek whom when so lewdly minded talus found approaching nigh unto him cheek by cheek he shouldered him from off the higher ground and down the rock him throwing in the sea him drowned like as a ship whom cruel tempest drives upon a rock with horrible dismay her shattered ribs in thousand pieces rives and spoiling all her gears and goodly ray does make herself misfortune's piteous prey so down the cliff the wretched giant tumbled his battered balances and pieces lay his timbered bones all broken rudely rumbled so was the high aspiring with huge ruin humbled that when the people which had thereabout long waited saw his sudden desolation they gan together in tumultuous rout and mutineering to stir up civil faction for certain loss of so great expectation for well they hoped to have got great good and wondrous riches by his innovation therefore resolving to revenge his blood they rose in arms and all in battle order stood in old greece and rome the poet was regarded as a species of prophet and called by the same name both were held to be alike divinely inspired but there are not many unveilings of the distant future in poetry so remarkable as this anticipation and refutation of the liberty and equality philosophism of the end of the eighteenth century in the end of the sixteenth nor has the kernel of that false philosophy ever perhaps been so acutely detected 
as it is in these verses by the exposure first of the assumption involved in the original notion that equality is anywhere a law or principle of nature secondly of the impossibility of either establishing true equality or even of ascertaining its existence by such rude superficial almost mechanical methods as human legislation has alone at its command the essence or reality of things will not be weighed in any scales which its hand can hold end of section forty five